Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hola, socios. Hola, equipo. My name is Neil. I'm Liam. This is John Nurnberger from Kansas City, Missouri, USA. Morayfield near Brisbane in Queensland. Edinburgh. Barcelona. And I'm a socio. I'm a socio. I'm a socio of The Big Interview. Hi, this is Taylor from Shenzhen, China, and I am a socio of The Big Interview. My favorite episodes are the weekly insights from La Liga. Living out in China, I can't keep up with the league I love because of the kickoff times and the fact that it's just not covered out here. It's not very popular, which is very, very sad. And Graham and his insight really helps me to stay in touch with the league I love and the football I love. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Big Interview at the World Cup. My name's Neil White and with me is the host of The Big Interview, Graham Hunter. And we are going to get to the World Cup and the Saturday quarterfinals as we look ahead to those games. But first, there is a transfer story that seems to be unwinding between Madrid and Turin that is one of the more interesting ones of recent summers. Graham, what news on Cristiano Ronaldo? Well, kudos to CR7 that even when he's been eliminated from the World Cup, he can still dominate it. I think we have to give him respect for that. And this time, I think that whether he moves or not, Neil, the reason that we're giving it airtime now is that there's substance. It's absolutely clear and confirmed that Juventus want to spend just over 100 million euros on him. That's factual. What's happened is that with reference back to stories we spoke about over the last year, since the day before the Cardiff Champions League final, Cristiano Ronaldo spoke to an ex-teammate who's a friend of mine and told him that he would move back to Manchester United in an instant were it not for the climate there, which he frankly didn't like when he was at United the first time and couldn't stand the prospect of reintroducing himself to, nor his, his family either. And the reason that he was so keen to move to United was not that he thought United was still the same version as when he left or that it was bubbling under or even that he had a particular appetite to go and work with Jose Mourinho again. It was simply the fact that, rightly or wrongly, and I, I make no editorial interference here to try and support him, I'm not in Team Cristiano at all. He has forever thought that Real Madrid don't appreciate him, don't don't treat him properly. Now, that may seem like total prima donna nonsense to everybody listening, but we are talking about an exceptional footballer and an exceptional guy. For him to be as remorselessly fit, as remorselessly successful, to consistently win the Champions League, to make you know record-breaking strides towards being equal with... Paco Gento, who's got six of this, um, these winners' medals, Cristiano Ronaldo over the 
last what, five years has won four. Um, he's predominantly been the main instrument in winning that. People who lived through the era of Santiago Bernabeu himself or Gento or indeed De Stefano, Puskas, might resent the idea that Ronaldo is making himself the most important guy in Real Madrid's history and Florentino Perez would probably argue that one too, incorrectly, clearly. But nonetheless, he's, he's at or around the most important man in its modern history and he expects extraordinary things back for the extraordinary investment he puts into being the best, to consistently winning the Ballon d'Or and the Champions League, two things he rates as more important than La Liga. And therefore, the standard of what he expects back is is just extraordinarily high, maybe unmeetable. And he has looked like somebody who's used these words only ever to negotiate better terms at Real Madrid. But what it transpires now is that, number one, that resentment has simmered. The fact that he hasn't yet been given new pay terms to either equal or surpass Neymar and Messi has rankled with him. And again, I don't want any sound as if I'm asking for any sympathy for him. But I think that given that we attempt to operate here in this podcast at a realistic level, we can report the facts accurately without necessarily having to agree with them. And therefore, the magical element that's happened, strange as football is, that when in the quarterfinals of the Champions League in that dramatic tie, which only ended when with Juventus leading 3-0 at the Bernabeu to make the tie 3-3 on aggregate, Benatia pushed over Lucas Vasquez and the row of all rows erupted about whether it wasn't a penalty or it was and, and Buffon stupidly got himself sent off, something he's subsequently apologised for. Ronaldo finishes the tie, but in the first leg, when they'd won uh, 3-0, Ronaldo's overhead goal, um, until Bale scored an even better effort in the Champions League final in Kiev, had been startling. It had been iconic. It it goes back to probably the goals he would score, predominantly for Manchester United, where he he seemed to invent a new free-kick-taking method and then lose it somewhat. He got the yips, didn't he? A little bit like, you know, a great, great golfer, Bernard Lang or whatever, gets the yips around the green. He did get the yips for a little while on free kicks, but no, there was a spell in which he was doing things that nobody had seen before, scoring from remarkable distances, scoring with great frequency. And this overhead goal in Turin looked like becoming maybe, I stress maybe, the iconic goal. What happened in the Juventus Stadium that night was that rather against type, albeit I did see Juventus' fans at the Deli Alpi applaud Manchester United off the night that they had trailed 2-0 in 1999, 3-1 on aggregate, and came back to win 3-2 with both Scholes and Keane um, booked and therefore suspended for the final. I saw that Juventus crowd, the same Juventus crowd that had been throwing bottles and um, uh, centimos down on us at the beginning of the match, the, the UK press, applauding United off the pitch. And they did something similar. Um, as soon as that goal went in, their awe was so great that they applauded Ronaldo and Ronaldo was visibly touched. You know, for all the theatrical nonsense you hear about his life, he is still a boy who wants to be loved and adored and wants, you know, the best salary and the and the Ballon d'Or and the Champions League. But he also wants um, respect and affection, and and he's he's pretty open about that. And he is, remember he's often been booed at the Bernabeu or jeered or whistled. 
There hasn't been the same warmth as there was, for example, for Raul, let's say. But the long and short of it is that that night he went to the corner flag and sort of held his hand over his chest and gave a little bow as if to say, sorry for scoring a worldie against you and thanks for the applause. And at that point, um, Agnelli Jr., who's now in charge of the or one of the key men in charge of the club, began pestering George Mendes with, will he come, will he come, will he join us? Now, when Mendes said the other day, if Cristiano Ronaldo goes to Juventus, it will be for a new challenge. It will be with eternal gratitude to Real Madrid's fans. None of this means that he's automatically leaving, although the stories are wildfire in northern Italy that they expect to present him within a matter of days. It's it's a real initiative. It's definitely something that Real Madrid are looking at and understand that even though they've offered him £25 million a season, plus five in a sort of bonuses, um, objective-driven bonuses, that is, they understand that there may come a time where his his cachet decreases and he's already 33. And it looks to me like a clever deal for everybody if they can, if they can get this across the line, except the weather in Turin is very similar to the weather in Manchester, Cristiano. So... You'll need a big, I don't know if they do, is it patios or what do you call those things you build at the back of your house to sit in in the Cristiano winter? Cristiano needs a gazebo, doesn't he? He's Well, he might do. That's very rude to say. But um, a, sun, a sun terrace or whatever, you know them things you, rather than a gazebo, which I think you know can be open, it's one of those um, things where you get build glass domes. It's like a greenhouse for people. There you go. A people greenhouse out the back of his mansion. <laughs> I guess it's the power of the ovation that he receives in Turin. It's the pull of the love that maybe, you know, as you mentioned, he, he doesn't always receive at Madrid. It sounds stupid, Neil. It sounds like you, you, you're right. But, it, you know, everybody will be listening going, well, if I earned 20 million a season, I wouldn't be looking for an arm around the shoulder. But footballers are rare birds. They really are. Um, they call him el, el bicho, the, 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 el bicho raro as well. In, in Madrid, this this is a strange insect, and none stranger. He's wired differently from most people, but then, so is Messi. So was the original Ronaldo, Georgie Best. Um, Cruyff was wired differently from other people. It was a standout element in his in his makeup. <laughs> Cristiano's not the first to be a little bit strange when you reach the summit. You look at Hollywood. You know, you reach the summit of adoration and wealth and ability to entertain millions and the chances are you're absolutely completely bonkers so cristiano is like a you know a bowler hatted umbrella wielding pinstripe suited man crossing um tower bridge in 1975 compared to them you know <laughs> mr ben mr stayed but maybe mr juventus maybe let's flip it and look at it from the juventus point of view then tell me why it's not crazy to give a footballer of that age the kind of salary they're talking about and at the transfer fee that he will still command. It might be crazy. I think you're right to to put an actuarial um, calculation on spending this much money on a guy who'll be 34 in, in February. The, the, rather than talking about crazy or not, I think you're hinting at how. And, and people may not be aware that while Juventus have been doing well in sporting terms in the Champions League recently, the the way in which the 
accountancy of that competition works is very beneficial to any side that le- reaches the final or the last four. And remember, they've been finalists um, in 2015 and 2017, if my calculations are right. What you get is is performance bonuses, qualification for the tournament bonuses. You get X much for passing each round. And that can take you up to 40, maybe even 50 million. But if you're a nation where there is a big TV audience, where there are a fanatical football audience, and where the rest of your national competitors don't perform well, you get what's called a share of the marketing pool. And that means that the joint marketing for the UEFA Champions League, which includes television rights, which includes advertising, sponsorship, corporate hospitality, a whole range of things. The marketing pool just means a giant pool of money and the, the better you perform in terms of television audiences and sporting progression, the higher a share you get. So, for example, when Barcelona played Juventus in the final in Berlin, I think it was in 2015, well, by the time the marketing figures were divided, the overall cash benefit to the loser of the final was plus 27 million. So just to be clear... By losing, Juventus still earned 27 million more than the winners did. Now, without going into too many figures, the fact is that before last season's sums are totaled, and that dramatic tie um, took Juventus again to an advanced stage, but Roma um, did much better this year. So their figures will be down. But over the three previous seasons, the Champions League brought Juventus, who remember are serial Serie A winners, 275 million euros. That's a gigantic sum, and it's outside the budget. No matter what you're budgeting for, you can't budget for other teams' failures, for you getting to the final twice. 275 million euros is a gigantic sum for an already wealthy club. Now, what they want to do is they want to vault the league they, they want to escape the fact that Inter are dormant, that Milan are dormant, that Roma, while increasingly attractive and, and damn unlucky not to compete the final last season, they are not a behemoth of European football, never have been, never will be. And therefore, what they need to do is something akin... It's crazy to talk about Serie A this way, given how, during our lives, it's been one of the, the dominant leagues, one of the dominant football icons they have to do something similar to Paris Saint-Germain and recruit big players, irrespective of what kind of league audience, what kind of league quality you're going to get. Now, it's not that Syria are is in its lowest form. That That's not the case, as was proven by Roma's improvement, Napoli's improvement, the fact that the title race was genuinely pretty exciting last season. And given the fact that Inter are beginning to look as if they might be on the rise again, I say that gently because their cast situation is very poor. However, the idea of Juventus not having to wait for a gigantic new TV deal, and I know that there's, a, there's been a €3 billion Euro investment in buying the Italian television rights. And when I left for the World Cup, no Italian broadcaster had bought those rights from the stakeholder. So the Italian football remains in a state of flux. And the idea of their leading club, Milan would contest that historically, but right now there's no question, recruiting Cristiano Ronaldo, you can begin to see the strategy, you can begin to see the ambition, whether as you point out it's it's bonkers or not that's something that maybe we'll enjoy finding out, and, and just to maybe put a punctuation point on this 
I know that people have often said this about Messi and Ronaldo has moved in his life from Sporting to United to Real Madrid. If, and I stress if, because I'm not touting this as a done deal, if this move were to take place, even at 33, it would be fascinating to see what Ronaldo made of new conditions, new pitches, new opponents, a different club, a club where when I went over to visit Dani Alves to film him, he he thought it was... He called it in front of their own staff, a small club, small mentality. He didn't enjoy being there. Now, Danny Alves, while being as successful as Cristiano Ronaldo in trophy terms, not as famous, not as brilliant in terms of marketing, much more successful in trophy terms, much. Danny Alves, if he thinks that, then I wonder what Ronaldo hypothetically would think when he moved to the banks of the River Pole. We'll see. But it's an interesting story. Time then to move back to standard business, the World Cup. Uh, we're looking forward to Saturday's quarterfinals with what remains of this podcast. Let's get to England after the break. And let's now turn our attentions to Croatia versus Russia. Comrades, it's time to flash back to Spain's exit at the hands of the hosts. Sorry, Graham, because here come the hosts again. Here come Russia. And this time it's Croatia that's in their sights. And do you know who we've never talked about in this podcast? One of the big characters of the World Cup. And the World Cup is about big characters. They don't come much bigger than Russia's number 22, Artem Juba. I love that guy. He came on as a sub against Saudi Arabia in the first game, rummeled them up, and they haven't budged him from the starting team since. Three goals, including the penalty he won and took against Spain. Yeah, when you say won it, I'm not buying that because Gerard Pique gave it away Joe Jordan style. And when George Orden conceded that penalty for Scotland at Anfield, 1977, PK was obviously watching. And Juba, I, I um, you know, I, I'm I'm learning about. I'd heard of him before um, this tournament, but seen not that much of him. I was aware that in the build-up um, to uh, the Euros, he'd been pivotal, scoring eight in eight for Slutsky's team. Why uh, in this? instance he wasn't a starter I find it a little bit hard to understand in that given that Russia came in to hosting their own tournament with their own media saying this is the worst international side in our entire history Juba although he's bounced around um, club football for long enough and is touching 30 is a footballer who in my eyes a little bit like Jan Koller um, is, is much better uh, technically, and much better in terms of the space he occupies and how he uses the ball than people give credit for. He's, he ain't no Peter Crouch. I'm not trying to filigree him up. But the competitive character, the ability to finish, is there. As he stepped up to take the penalty, given his demeanour, his stance, and the run-up, I had not much doubt that he was going to score. Do you remember his celebration when he scored at the Lucian He's got this trademark celebration, which seems to be a combination of like a military salute and some kind of tribute to the comb-over. And? Like one hand goes over. No. I'm doing no, it right now. No, 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 no. If Bobby Charlton's listening, Bobby, forgive him. He's young. He, he knows not what he does. That, comrade, is the rule in Russia that you may not salute anybody Unless you have a hat on. He's putting on his hat? If you want to get a header, get a hat, as they say. The rule then in Russia is, and I know this from my cultural research, if you want to salute somebody and you aren't wearing a hat, you put your left hand flat on the crown of your head and you salute with your right hand. 
So if that single fact hasn't made it worth talking about Artem Sergeyevich Juba, then I don't know what could have been. It's interesting in that clearly one of the things that people will be looking to find out as the early stages of this game come along is whether Russia play... The brand of football that caused them to draw 3-3 with Spain last November, the brand of football that made them um, so exciting against, you know, really admittedly, obviously naive. You don't simply want to say poor about Saudi Arabia, but they were extremely naive and they were dominated physically. Now, when Russia dropped Cheryshev for the Spain game, I have to say I was immensely disappointed. And while... I can not only see the joy in them going through in their own tournament, but celebrate it. And I can reflect to you that every Russian I either knew well at the tournament or bumped into who said, oh, your team Spain. Pre-season, yeah, this time, this time. <laughs> you're going through the absolute lack of expectation, even in the stadium. What you got was the Russia, Russia chance, which is fantastic. It's It's incessant. And given it's three consonant, it's got a lovely roll to it, and it was noisy. But it was the sound of a crowd going, well, let's make a big, proud national statement to the world, and let's enjoy ourselves while we can, because, you know, we're going out. There was no real, um, I wouldn't have said, uh, belief, that even in the stadium and around the country. They just thought their, their team was a team of idiots. So I can understand exactly why the game was played in that style, but it was, you know, it's... It's like watching potatoes grow. You know, there's not a lot of fun in watching two games like that. So I would be looking, if you're talking about Russia's sort of 1m96 one, one centre forward and talking about will it be interesting to see him go up against a guy that the Premier League knows well and Dejan Lovren, because I'm sure that will be the marking system, then I, I buy your argument that that's an outball for Russia if they want to play the same way. And given that Croatia... We want to have the ball to be creative, um, have got footballers who can go past Russia. I'll be, you know, I'll be fascinated to see what tactics um, Stanislav Cheryshov comes up with. Juba's the kind of player that I can imagine people up and down the country and all over the world signing on Football Manager or FIFA all summer because they've seen him at the tournament and kind of dig his style. When you broke down what happened to Spain against Russia... You focused on, well, the short version, not enough risk in the passing from midfield to forward. If Russia do defend in the same way this time, they're going to be up against the wrong kind of midfield because you just can't see Rakitic and Modric not taking those risks if they get in a possession. I agree with that, but it's more than that because what didn't happen was that, you know, Jordi Alba wasn't as effective as he should have been. Um, Nacho seemed to be on reasonable form. But he took a brutal um, stud to the knee in what should have been a red card in the first 15 minutes and then had to, had to go off with a bulbous swollen knee. And by the time Danny Carvajal came on, he had a couple of shots of opening things up. It, it's a long way to get to the fact that if they use Perisic wide, there's another big threat um, to Russia. If Versalico, the Atleti right back, gets up and down the wing there's another huge threat that they didn't have to face against um, Spain. So it isn't simply the, that orchestrating from midfield, the, the clever passes or the ability to break through and hit the edge of the box that both Modric and Rakitic have got. 
it's it's beyond that. I think the test is different against Croatia, albeit, Neil, we, we can't avoid the fact that in the last tournament in France, when they came up against the Portugal side that defended, they ran out of gas. You know, they were they didn't look like the confident, flair-filled side which had beaten Spain in the previous game. They took Rakitic off and it just looked as if there was no gas in their engine. Now, we've talked about this before that I, I, I'm not entirely sure how it is that in particular Rakitic and Modric who've got, I think in club terms, the most uh, responsibility on their shoulders, not only during the last year, but year after year after year, and they consistently are playing late into the summer, one way or the other, club or international-wise, and then on international tours. I'm not sure how they managed to keep it going. OK, we're going to take a break now. Coming up next, it's England versus Sweden. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome back. We're going to look at Sweden and England who can make it to the semis for the first time since 1990. Graham, England came through a life experience against Colombia. For a period in the middle of that game, they were dragged into a brawl. Then at the end, they had to put all their preparation and theory around penalties into practice, and they executed. So let's start with what happened when things got fruity. Did you see the response to the way that Colombia were playing as a sign of strength in England, or was there something there that opponents, starting with Sweden, might look to exploit? It depends, it depends what you mean exactly. You know, do you mean the response in terms of how they played or that they won or the fact that they didn't get involved in yellow and red card situations? I would say that there was a period around the penalty that England were awarded where it turned into a, a game, the type of which certainly at a World Cup I haven't seen since probably like the 1980s or, or early 90s. The referee... Brutal and streetwise and cheating. All of this, all of this. And I think there were times when, I mean, you say they responded with, without picking up too many yellows and reds. That wasn't necessarily down to the way they responded. I think that was down to the fact that the referee kind of went absent for a wee while. While there were little moments of England imposing themselves back, they didn't lose the plot. They didn't do outright stupid things. They um, for, And, for example, when you talked about the referee, England maybe getting a light hand because the referee lost it for a little bit. At the penalty, where Colombia's behaviour is an outright disgrace, and they could easily have seen four, maybe five yellow cards, one of which, if I calculate rightly, would have constituted a red, it's, it's Henderson who gets booked. 
Now, all I would say is that one in the past, England sides would have got somebody sent off there or would have got distracted. Now, that's the thing that I, I like very much indeed. By the end, there wasn't a million miles between the two sides because once Colombia changed their tactics and went front foot and England tired a little bit, it did look as if they might get some joy. Might. Um, also, they have some talent in that, um, in that team. But England didn't get distracted. Never mind the penalty shootout. During extra time, they didn't go seeking retribution. Nobody shrunk from the battle. Nobody went and spoke to the referee and got themselves sent off. It, listen, it's far too minor a victory and far too slender a victory to go eulogising them and saying, rah, 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 they've got everything right. But, Neil, it was, you know, it was pungently better than what we've been witnessing from England teams since either um, 96 or, or 90, whichever you want to call it. 96 is a little bit different because while they played well, they were the host nation and, and their mentality was palpably different. I was at that tournament. I think you were too. So let's go back as far as 90. You know, that's the, that's the, that's the first time we've seen the green shoots of a team that plays as if they're international tournament savvy. And that goes for the penalty taking. They're not getting their heads messed up when Henderson's effort is saved. Pickford and his reaction to having to save one. And all the chat afterwards about I knew where every single one of them was going apart from Falcao. He's the only one who deviated from my notes. All this kind of stuff. And, and Southgate's hypnotic, like Southgate told all his players they were moving to Barbuda and going to marry men called Keith and, and give away all their money. They would, you know, because it's a hypnotic cult Southgate's got going. And, and that can work in a World Cup. There you go. Hypnotic cults can work, you know, out with World Cups and out with football as well. There's, there's a historical precedent there too. But let's not get into it in this podcast. Both Sweden and England have kind of similar stories in, in, to some degree in this World Cup. They, they both haven't scored too many in open play. They both tend to draw a lot of penalties. Both seem to be strong at set pieces in both boxes. Have you talked about the quality in various areas of the England team. Where did England have to be wary of Sweden? Well, I've always liked um, Berg and, and Toivonen. Um, I think that one of the things that England need to be wary of, having praised them, um, and it was Matthias Rubi who missed, just to, you know, tick that box. I've, I've been at, I think, three different um, England-Sweden games. And a factor that probably doesn't talk about the current team, but does talk about the media and the fans, is that because it's Sweden, England always think they're going to win, and they almost never do. So they're playing against a side that I think it will, despite Gareth Southgate's very best efforts, it will be hard for him to persuade everybody in that squad not to have a little bit of a supercilious attitude towards Sweden, and that can count. Sweden's ability is not gigantic, but they're, they're further advanced in establishing their identity than England are. You, you know, and the listeners know, that because England have got bubbling underneath them, these um, couple of World Cup winning youth sides and a group of players that go to Euro finals too, there is a, a, an enormous change of culture, which happens, the sandwich is nice in that the kids coming from underneath play a different brand of football, are more football intelligent and 
mix the best of the continent with the best of Britain, which makes the next 10 years really exciting and fascinating if you're English. Um, and you've got Southgate as the other part of the white bread, um, squeezing down from the other side saying, keep the ball, play out from the back, follow my instructions, um, play tournament-wise football, have an identity. Um, and he's lucky to have a, a generation where there's Harry Kane, who seems to be exceptional. But it, it, it still doesn't mean that they're all the way there. And they're playing against a Sweden side who can alternate between being very direct or being a side that's quite similar to England. You saw, I think, something about a spirit which is partly to do with uh, Jan Andersen, who has had an amazing um, introduction to international football, having been 19 years a club manager and no experience internationally. Um, and partly you're seeing the fact that these guys have got rid of, you know, a plus minus in Slatan. It's been to their benefit in terms of they've they've no need to look over their shoulder at him in training. They've no need to wonder what he's going to say next in um, in the media. They've had a good what two and a half years without him. They've got a tremendous, by their own testimony, not by my assessment, a tremendous sports psychologist in Daniel Ekval who I think has had huge success in, in making them not worry about making mistakes. I think that's a really, really big thing. He rose to fame, if you remember. Toivonen is one of the players who, since he was a big hit at the winning under-21s with uh, Sweden, I've, I've waited to see him mature into the leading player he should be. And I don't know if you remember, in the qualifying campaign where they, um, they run France close but beat France while edging out Holland... Toivonen scores against France at home, where actually um, Jimmy Germans has, has scored the equaliser. And Toivonen scores from pretty much the halfway line with one of these giant David Beckham-style lobs. And he's, he does so using boots, which in the training in the lead-up to the match, he'd hated. They, they didn't seem to fit. They were new. They, they, were like, they felt like it was a stone in his shoe. And he shouted over to Ekval, the, the, the psychologist, that he needed a special session for his boots. And Ekval played along and gave the boots a little bit of psychotherapy. And then, of course, when you get a little lucky break and Toivonen scores from the halfway line against France to win, then suddenly Ekval seems to be a magician. And what I like um, very much about Anderson's side is that while I'm not going to call um, Emil Forsberg a world-class footballer, I think that he's... Um, influential on the ball. I think he's got time and space on the ball. And you asked about dangers. And I'm going to watch how Forsberg plays against England and watch whether he manages to have the ball and do with the ball what he is capable of doing against other teams. Because it's it's this is a game, in my view, where Sweden have a 55-45 chance of winning because they're further down the line. They may have fewer famous players. They have definitely got fewer players of out, outright talent. But they've got players who've drifted all over Europe, who've learned different cultures, who've learned different playing styles, and who have a far... just They've got a far more advanced identity in how they want to play. So England have to play better than they did against Colombia. That's my proposition, Neil. Um, I'd like to see England going through. They have more... 
outright football in their ranks. I'm definitely not anti-England. But they will need to be more confident on the ball. They will need more from Lingard. They will need more from Sterling, more creativity, more ability to open things up, and more from Deli Ali. And one of the factors that Sweden don't have to worry about so much that Southgate does is that that Columbia game you talked about, what was Southgate's expression after the match? That it was like general hospital in the dressing room and that there are a handful of his key players who are, who are still kind of limping around and kidding on that they're fine. Well, there's no room for that um, against Sweden. It will be fast, it will be physical. And if Sweden change gear, they're capable of altering. From what Anderson said, that in, in the early part of his career, it was long ball and crosses from the wing. And he said that his great quote, and this is something for people in Scotland to listen to, and Jana Andersson, the Sweden coach, says that training facilities and pitches have improved so much in Sweden that over the years it's allowed us to do more coaching and better quality coaching. And that's allowed him to change. And he wants, in general, his team to play ball-dominating, possession-passing football. That means they've got plan A and plan B against England. I think it could be a terrific Premier League game. And listen, may the better side win. That's our show. Thanks for listening to these World Cup podcasts. More coming. We'll be back with another season of the big interview soon, Graham. In the meantime, don't forget you can support us by claiming £4 off your Gillette razors at trygillette.com forward slash big interview. You can leave a review for the podcast at iTunes or wait until the music that's just coming now by Beer Jacket, as always, and then listen to Graham telling you about our supporters' trust over at patreon.com. I really hope you're enjoying these World Cup shows. We've got huge plans for next season, but we do need your help to make them happen. Go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to become a socio, a member, to join us, to support us. You'll get an extra big interview every month, plus lots of other bonus content. Last season, our members got nine exclusive big interviews, including Rafa van der Vaart, Troy Deeney, and Roberto Di Matteo. So go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Do it now, please. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.